Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, January 11th, marks our 59th show and our first of 2017, so uh, Happy New Year everyone. My name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Denials and Effective communica Physician Communication. I'm joined today by a familiar face, my one of my regular co-hosts, Sharm Brody, there on the left of your screen. Sharm uh, is a CDI Education Specialist here with us at HC Pro and ACTUS and serves as a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps as well as a subject matter expert. She has seven years of CDI experience, including a background in consulting in which she provided program reviews and training to the med staff, including physician education to various health care facilities. And I'm very thrilled to have her on uh, our first show of 2017. So welcome back, Sharm. Thank you. Happy New Year to everyone. All right. And next, I'd like to introduce our industry guest on today's program. You may be familiar with uh, Dr. Tim Brundage. Um, Tim is an MDCCDS and is the medical director of Brundage Medical Group. Uh, just briefly, by way of background, he's a diplomat of the American Board of Internal Medicine and actively practices clinical medicine as a hospitalist at St. Petersburg, Florida General Hospital. Uh, he's an assistant professor at Lake Erie College of Medicine where he teaches resident physicians through daily hospital rounds, reviews their documentation, improves their dictated H&Ps, discharge summaries, progress notes. Uh, Tim has an extensive background with us here at Actus as well. You know, he was a former Actus Advisory Board member. He's presented on several occasions at the Actus Conference. And this year he's going to be um, presenting a poster at the Actus Conference that is related to today's topic that I hope you can stop by and check out for those that are attending the ActusCon. So uh, I want to welcome you to your first, I believe this is your this is your first appearance on Actus Radio, so welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and Happy New Year, everyone. All right. Um, as we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. Now we'll ask you to weigh in on that, and we will uh, come back to the results in just a few minutes. I think you all should be seeing that now. Um, so the poll reads, do you communicate uh, denials back to your physicians? Your options are yes, uh, formally, and we educate to prevent additional denials. Yes, maybe you do so, but on an informal basis. Um, no, we don't, but maybe others in your hospital do. Um, no, no one in our facility does this, or maybe you don't know or it's not applicable to your work environment or situation. So again, do you communicate denials back to your physicians? And your options are yes, you know, this is sort of a formal process for you. You might maybe you do post-denial education and show them denials and meetings, etc. Uh, yes, but maybe very informally talk about it a little bit. Um, no, but maybe someone else in your facility does. No, no one in your facility does this. Um, and your last option is either you don't know or, or perhaps it's not applicable to you. 
All right, we're going to go ahead and close this out. We had about three quarters of our audience has voted. And we will, of course, as we always do, come back to that in just a few minutes. Um, as I mentioned, our guest today is Dr. Tim Brundage. Again, welcome to the program, Tim. Uh, thanks for being a part of Actus Radio. Thank you, Brian. Um, yeah, I know you have a lot to talk about today, including you know sort of what you do and 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 um, how you maybe some best practices for relaying this back to physicians. But maybe you could just start with you know these days. I know you're involved in denials and uh, appeals and. What are some of the common reasons that, that for denial that you're seeing from auditors uh, these days? Well, thank you, Brian. There are so many reasons for denial. I think that um, our managed Medicare, managed Medicaid medical directors are really denying as much as they can. Um, I think lots of it is a business uh, tactic. But they do that because they want to make sure that the patient needs to be hospitalized. There are definitely good reasons behind it. Um, sometimes I think it goes beyond uh, beyond that, obviously, just to business purposes. But, um, you know, we see people who come in and the documentation just doesn't support medical necessity. Um, I think everyone in the CDI world knows that uh, we all exist because documentation could and should get better. So we see uh, uh, repeat offenders, heart failure, pneumonia, acute respiratory failure, acute kidney injury, encephalopathy. These are kind of the... Uh, the diagnoses that we all know are, are scrutinized very closely and denied very frequently. They are removed for many reasons. Uh, most of the time they're removed if they are the only MCC or the only CC on the record. But I've definitely seen records where three different CCs and or MCCs were removed from one record, leaving only COPD exacerbation. So, um, you know, these records are all targets. Um, we're doing a couple different things to help support our hospitals. We do peer-to-peer um, -peer denials management directly where I get on the telephone, call the medical director of the insurance company directly, discuss with them why the patient was hospitalized. We have a nice collegial conversation. And usually we can get uh, that overturned if there is reason for hospitalization. Um, it's not uncommon for me to call and have a talk with the medical director and occasionally the patient really should be in observation services, so we'll agree that that is a reasonable option. But most of the time, it truly is about documentation, making sure that your, doc that your doctors are putting the right words into the record um, and getting those words in the record and then, of course, getting them over to the uh, insurance company in an efficient and time-effective manner uh, so that they have those records uh, to review and they can make a determination about medical necessity. Excellent. Hi, Tim. This is Charm. I have, I have a question for oh, sure. you. You advocate that the CDI should get more involved in the business office side of clinical documentation. Can you tell me what that would look like and a little bit about the process? Sure. Um, incredibly, it's not uncommon for the business office and the CDI staff to not know each other and not communicate. So the business office will be at an off-site location. The CDI team is probably at the hospital. And sometimes those folks don't even know each other. So when we bring those people together, you know, the business office obviously is fielding the denials, fielding um, lots and lots of feedback from the insurance companies. And they need to work with their CDI team 
so that the two of them can communicate effectively with your denials management team. And obviously, there's a ton of CDI-specific things that could and should be in the medical record that either we can use these as tools to educate our doctors or we can use what's already existing there uh, for appeals, uh, for audits and appeals uh, when the patient is denied. Either the hospitalization is denied for medical necessity or there's a DRG change where they just removed one or two diagnoses um, from the medical record, from the coded record. Okay, thank you. Excellent. Um, you know, Tim, we've talked about this a little on prior shows, but you know, seeing how you have a lot of experience with it, uh, educational strategies for teaching physicians how to document appropriately. You know, what what have you found most effective? Is it is it service line, large groups, individually, and as a physician yourself, you know, with with still some clinical practice as a hospitalist, how are you? How do you recommend getting time with with busy physicians to maybe talk about some of the ways that they are being denied? Well, it's very appropriate to get in front of your physicians. Uh, we do it in uh, many different uh, layers, many different ways. We do lectures, uh, and I try to get to, if your hospital has resident physicians, we can focus on the resident physicians. They usually provide a very large proportion of the documentation. If you can get those young doctors on board before their professors teach them the ways of the old school doctor, we like to teach them the, the ways of the new school doc who is savvy about ICD-10 documentation. Try to get in front of the resident physicians, get in front of the hospitalists, get in front of the critical care docs, get in front of your surgeons in a lecture format, and then give them some feedback on the back end. So we'll do several different things. We will take CDI recommendations. We have hospitals who will send us um, physician charts and say, you know, the doctor either A, didn't answer the query, or B, answered the query like this, and we really uh, would like you to have take a look at this chart and see if there are some educational opportunities for the doctor. So we'll review that chart, and then we send them a, a, a via email, we send them a, a report, you know, the doctor said this, the uh, coding language would be optimized if he or she said this. And then we use that, and at the bottom we have a little disclaimer that says this is for educational purposes only. That keeps us in compliance so that they, it says right on there, you know, we're not using this for rebilling or for coding. We're just purely using that document for education. And we do the very same thing with denials. When a denial comes in, after I speak to the medical director, if it's a peer-to-peer, -peer, or after we write the appeal letter, if it's an appeal, we will take that documentation from that record and create a create a documentation suggestion uh, report card for your doctor, and then we email that to them. So the CDI team usually has the uh, hospitalist physician's cell number, so I can shoot them a text message. Then they usually reply with their email address, and then I'll shoot them an email, and that email will include you know, here's what we saw that you documented, Doc. Here's how it could be optimized. And my, of course, my contact, please call me as the medical director of the CDI team. Then we try to have communication with them. And they kind of like that. You know, they enjoy, when we give them a lecture, it's kind of nebulous, and they don't really see a lot of the reasons behind it. But if we have an actual denial, you know, your documentation 
opens the door for a denial. Here's how we can help you to optimize your documentation. Um, they they kind of like that as far as it, that's a real world example, you know, from a denial that they had. And you know, physicians like that. They like to be they like to be shown the two you know the two things that were actually taken from their own charts. You know, what they actually documented, and then what might have been documented to optimize um, optimize their their documentation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay, I have another question. What about for the CDI, some out-of-the-box or some of the non-traditional ways to get physicians involved? Um, do, and just out of curiosity, do the physicians at your facility know when their um, charts have been, their documentation has caused a denial? They do because we give them that feedback. Um, but I don't think traditionally they ever have. You know, it's so rare for the doctors to be involved in this process because it starts at the business office, starts in the coding office, starts in the CDI office. And really, if we don't share that with the doctor, he or she will not know that it occurred. And, you know, it's, um, what do they say, fool me once, uh, yes. my bad, fool me twice, you know, that kind of thing. It, you want to make sure that your doctor knows what he or she documented that could be optimized and how it can be optimized. And that will really help them in the future. Um, some of the things that we do, I'm not sure if they're out of the box, Sharm, uh, or if they're just a part of good education. But we have, I, I shared some things with Brian. I shared the Framingham Criteria for Heart Failure. This is published out of Framingham, Massachusetts, published by the, oh, that's the other one, Brian. We want to start with that one. Oh, sorry. This is an example yeah, on the board. All right, this is an example here of our feedback to the physician. So you can see here is hospital X, here's the CDI review, and then obviously we've blacked it out for HIPAA compliance. But the CDI concern, so what happens is the CDI uh, specialist sends me, hey, Dr. Brundage, these are the issues that we saw. Can you please get with Dr. X and Dr. Y because there were these things that were threatened or removed by the managed Medicare. They said they were going to remove acute diastolic heart failure, they were going to remove pneumonia, and they were going to challenge those if we tried to code them. So then we say, here's, doc, here's what you documented, here's how we can uh, uh, improve that. Now sometimes, uh, you can see down here right in front, it says acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Now that's very good documentation because we got our acute exacerbation and our COPD, so I do give them positive feedback. Of course, positive feedback is excellent as well. And then below that, you can see they just documented diabetes, and that was the note. So the note on 1122 had this. The note on 1122 had the, just the diabetes. And then we'll go through and say, doctor, if you are going to document diabetes, please specify it as hyper or hypoglycemia, with or without DKA, with or without hyperosmolarity, with or without coma. Um, and I try to get them to use the Glasgow Coma Scale I love the Glasgow Coma Scale because it gives us some objective information to support a very nebulous diagnosis. So, for example, encephalopathy and coma are very clinical diagnoses. They're very much in the hands of the physician. So I try to get them to use the Glasgow Coma Scale. And please, everyone who's listening, go to the app store on your smartphone and go to Glasgow Coma Scale. There is a free app that you can download that'll be right there in front of you on your smartphone so you can have the Glasgow Coma Scale right in front of you and please encourage your physicians to use that. It's such a nice tool to help them with encephalopathy and coma, those diagnoses. Excellent. 
yeah, I had I wasn't aware of that myself, Tim. I'll be sure to check it out. I'm going to go ahead and just pull up your your other uh, form you were kind enough to share with us and our Actus Radio listeners today. This is um, this is more of an educational yes. uh, tool. Exactly. To use here. Yep. This is the Framingham criteria. Yep, I use this with my resident physicians. Uh, this is published out of the um, American Association of Family Practice, but the Framingham criteria was originally published from Framingham, Massachusetts. It's definitely a wonderful tool. You need two major or one major and two minor criteria in order to meet the definition of an exacerbation of heart failure according to the Framingham criteria. So if your doctor documents these major criteria and or these minor criteria in their documentation, it really will help you defend when you go to defend, yes, this truly was acute on chronic or also called an exacerbation, also called decompensated. When you put these things in, and now I teach these, I teach these directly to my physicians. Every time we have a heart failure admission, I ask my resident physicians to make sure that they are looking for these things. And the other thing I wanted to point out, and in fact, my wife Patty wanted me to be sure to point out that physical examination findings are super important and we just don't get those. In this world of the electronic health record, every physical exam looks like click, 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 like every other physical exam. And that really leaves us uh, struggling on the back end from a CDI, from a documentation, from a coding, and from an audit protection perspective. If your physical examination doesn't look like the patient actually has heart failure, your physician advisor to CDI, your denials management team is going to have a heck of a time fighting the denial because there's not enough proof there. So if you can get your doctors to use this tool when they are documenting heart failure and, by the way, do a high-quality physical exam and document it, when they see a patient, boy, it really helps on the back end to say to the medical director of the insurance company, look, look at these physical exam findings that we have that are supporting the fact that this truly is acute on chronic systolic heart failure, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tim, these are great tools. You know, um, we can, um, one of them I believe is just a link that you sent us. We can maybe, with your permission, perhaps post this other one as an example. If, if, um, we can talk about it later, by the way, yep. to the show. Please. I've got a few requests Please. just through the question uh, prompts here. So um, people are really liking these. So thanks again for sharing with us. You know, maybe we can no just wrap up a little, just with the interview portion here, Tim. Any um, you know, for the listeners on this program, working at CDI, wanting to implement a process, perhaps improve their existing process of communicating denials back to the physicians. You know, what 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 is a good starting point? Um, you know, we, we covered a lot today, but you know, where, where would you yeah. recommend they start? Um, I would recommend that your denials, yeah, your denials management team, which should include CDI, it should include your coders, it should include your business office get together and do maybe a monthly, at least monthly, denials meeting. Figure out who's in charge. Figure out who's doing your denials and your appeals. Who's writing the letter. Have your CDI clinical team help support the clinical side of the denial while your business office and your coding are supporting those aspects of the denial. Work with your physician medical advisor if you have one and get that doctor involved because having a physician help you write the letter 
is very, very powerful. And then, of course, at the end of the day, it's all about education, education, education. I try to use my physician's clinical opinion, and I try to get them to document that clinical opinion using uncertain diagnoses when necessary. So I encourage my docs to use possible, probable, likely, suspected diagnoses so that we can then rule them in or rule them out through the hospitalization, hopefully confirm them or rule them out by the discharge summary. And then that discharge summary really can help us when we are in the denials process, when we are in the appeals process. Uh, hopefully that uh, document will really stand strong to support our, um, our appeals. As, as we know, um, you know, all of these diagnoses are being questioned more and more and more. It's so important to have a very strong denials team, and it's very important to give that information back to the physician so that that physician can then learn from what, you know, what denials have occurred in the past so that when they have a patient come in next week, you know, they'll do a better job with their documentation, a better doc job with their physical exam, a better job with, you know, communicating the medical necessity of the hospitalization, hopefully through their documentation. Awesome. Well, great stuff today, Tim. Um, we're going to go ahead now and, and uh, pull up our poll again and share those results with everyone. So this is uh, how folks answered our poll. Again, we asked, do you communicate denials back to your physicians? So it looks like only 5% do so uh, in, with a formal process with their CDI team. 12% do so uh, informally. About a third, um, uh, their hospitals do this, but their CDI department uh, does not. Um, almost 20% say no one at our facility does this, 18%, and then 32% either don't know or not applicable. So what do, what do you think of these results, uh, Dr. Bruns? Did anything surprise you here or, or uh, any, any you advice? You know, Brian, I guess my, my opinion of, the, of this poll is it's just amazing how infrequently the doctor is even aware of the fact that there was a denial. If the doctor doesn't know that he or she had a patient who was denied, then they can't fix whatever it is that they did. And so that's why our, you know, our little uh, group really tries to support our hospitals, and we try to sh share this information back to the physician. Um, they don't always like to hear it, Brian, of course, but, you know, at, that, at the same time, just having the knowledge that it occurred means that the next time they document in the medical record, they might think twice about the fact, well, there might be a medical director looking over my shoulder. You know, what, what bought the bed? You know, from a case management perspective, what bought the bed? Why was the patient, why did they need to be hospitalized? If I can get the physician to stop for three seconds and think that way, usually the documentation will improve dramatically. Any thoughts from, from your perspective, Sharm, on the poll? Uh, no, it's actually, it correlates with what I hear in classes. A lot of the time, the CDI themselves don't even know what the final outcomes of denials are. Um, and that's one of the things that we've been saying for a very long time. We need to work as a group. Denials, we need to know what's being denied or we don't know what to fix. Same way with the physicians. Often it comes up that I think physicians would be very surprised if they knew what parts of their documentation were causing denials. Right. Well, thanks, guys. I'm going to switch at this point to our In the News segment. Again, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. 
Today I'd like to uh, share a recent story with you you should be seeing on your screen at this time from um, Health Leaders Media, which is Bundled Payments Work Study Finds, but HHS Nominee No Fan. So you can find it here on healthleadersmedia.com um, at this URL. Um, essentially, the, the article cites a recent study published in um, JAMA, or the Journal of American Medical Association, that study used Medicare claims data from 2008 through mid-2015. It's actually linked to here. I won't go into that. Actually, I'll just show you where it links to if you want to read the actual study that this uh, comes from in JAMA. Um, it's linked to in the article here uh, from health leaders. But in essence, as we know, um, most of us know, uh, starting in April 2016, CMS required around 800 hospitals in 67 cities to use the bundle payment model for joint replacements and uh, 90, day, 90 days of care after the surgery as part of what's called the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Program. Um, the program had been road tested on a small number of hospitals voluntarily, uh, but this particular study in JAMA found that hospitals saved an average of 8% under the program, and some saved much more. Uh, what's interesting, though, and as we know, uh, with the change in administration, uh, Tom Price, President-elect Trump's HHS nominee, has been a little skeptical that bundled payments did save money. Um, the researchers here, though, estimate that if every hospital used this model, it could save Medicare $2 billion annually. Um, it's a nice summary of sort of how the bundled payment system works. You know, if you're not familiar with bundled payments, you know, how, uh, you know, things like joint replacements or some heart surgeries, how, how CMS adds up the cost for the entire episode from the stay, medical supplies, the rehab, and if that total cost is below a target set by CMS, the hospital gets to keep the savings, and if not, the hospital has to pay Medicare. It's really an incentive program. Um, you know, the article does cite a justification letter from Price stating his objections. You know, and it's not, you know, it's, it's certainly um, within his right to do so. And, and it's interesting to see how he thinks that, you know, Medicare is exceeding its powers here and maybe even taking decisions out of the hands of doctors and patients. Uh, CMS on December 20th announced it would expand mandatory bundled payments to treatments for heart attacks, bypass surgery. So this program is supposed to expand. Um, beginning in July of this year, July 2017, but that is of course up in the air now with the change in administration and you know the promise uh, to repeal elements of the ACA. I'm, I'm interested to see what the new administration does with the ACA, which includes things like bundled payments, um, and to see if they're going to continue or not. You know, the, this study does does seem to show that they are working, uh, but we will see. And there's actually some really good data in here, you know, for those that are wondering what, uh, how to bundle payments, do they actually work? You know, this is an observational study, a decrease in almost 5,500 in total spending per episode um, in JAMA. So I encourage you to check that out. Maybe I'll just ask you briefly, Tim, have you ever worked with hospitals operating as part of an ACO or under a bundle payment? What, what's, what's sort of your opinion on this? And, and Maybe do you have any speculation on whether you think this is going to continue or perhaps be rolled back in, uh, later this year? Yeah, I would say it's all speculation at this perspective. I, I do think that the macro legislation 
was very bipartisan when it was voted in in 2015, and that macro legislation gives us our Medicare Part C as well as our, uh, you know, our new uh, traditional Medicare will be moving toward the MIPS system. So physicians will have to select an alternative payment model, one of which is bundled payments. So I don't think this is going anywhere. I think that this is the wave of the future, and I think that documentation will optimize the bundle so people like us who are in the CDI world will be very necessary to helping these surgeons and physicians optimize the bundle and you know I think that that's I think that's where we're headed I, do, I don't know but I suspect that these things are here to stay and will only increase as we go forward right any thoughts at all on this charm I, I actually agree with Dr. Brundage I think they're here to stay um, some of it worries me, though, from a patient perspective, not from, obviously, a physician perspective. I do worry that they're going to take the decision-making out of the hands of my physicians, especially if I've spent a long time talking about, you know, an orthopedic surgeon for a knee replacement, um, only to find out that Medicare is dictating the joints he can use, the prosthesis that he can use. Uh, that worries me a bit. But as a consumer, so, you know, you have to, you have to, do your, your, your due diligence and learn about these things. And it's just another part. And documentation certainly will play a big part in it, I think. No, it's, a, it's an interesting intersection of you know, the Medicare trust fund and protecting the, the cost and lowering the cost of health care versus patient choice and, and, and uh, physician choice. So more to come here, but worth checking out that article. Um, we'll wrap up here with uh, ACTUS update. Um, Actus updates a regular feature bringing you closer to what's going on inside of Actus. I, I showed briefly at the outset of the show um, the new CCDS exam prep class that we're debuting in 2017. I would encourage you to check that out if you have, if you're perhaps interested in pursuing certification in the new year, or you have staff members that might be interested. You know, we have a CCDS exam study guide that's been published for the last couple of years. We've had some requests for some folks prefer to learn live in class um, rather than through a manual. So we off, we're offering the CCDS exam prep class. Um, you know, it, it's explained here. I won't go through it all. It does cover the, the content domains that are on the exam. We cover test-taking strategies in class as well. Um, you do get access to the CCDS exam study guide, online practice exam. Uh, and it's taught by our Actus Bootcamp instructors, including Charm on today's show, Laurie Prescott, um, Alan Frady eventually will be involved in teaching this. So um, again, if you're interested in certification, would like a different way to prep for the class, we're going to be offering a couple classes and possibly more to come later this year. So, so go ahead and check that out. Um, again, the CCDS exam uh, prep class. Any, any comments on this, Charm? I know it's a brand new class that we're just about to debut here. I, I'm actually, I've been part of this, and I am super excited. People have been asking for something like this for a while, and I am thrilled that we are now offering it. Uh, it's going to yeah. fill up fast, I think. So I would encourage people so to check too. it out soon. Nice. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, January 25th. 
Uh, we're going to have a guest, Connie Chappelle, uh, new to the show, to talk about how she implemented the severe sepsis bundle in her facility. So that should be interesting. Uh, but as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show or other topics, please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it for today's Actus Radio. Thanks again, uh, Tim, for being on the show. Excellent job as always, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Brian.